This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, why in the world are you dressed up as Elvis? Well, you you told me to come over like this. This I, is your costume. No, 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 no. I told you to come over so that we could watch Elvis, not to come dressed up as Elvis. Oh, shit. I glued all these rhinestones on here for nothing? I know. To your skin, even. That is, that is not going to come off easily. Now we're going to uh, proceed to break the fourth wall and uh, laugh at the people who have come to listen to us today. Oh, why? Just, just like Andy Kaufman. Oh, no, come on. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle, Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the, machine. the Machine. You know, the thing is, you know, if Andy Kaufman were alive today, I was thinking about this, I firmly believe 100% that he would be a Trump supporter, mostly because he continually did things that were like anti what was going on at the time. <laughs> Whatever was like uh, seen as like lowbrow or the wrong thing to do, that's when he leaned into doing that sort of thing. He would have Kanye'd it. Except he would be like, yeah, he would be him and Sasha Baron Conan, Conan, Sasha Baron Cohen, like fighting off with each other. Yeah, that would be, I mean, we discussed, are we talking about the movie already? I, I think when we watched it together. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, well, this is like not even in the episode. Uh, welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm drinking water. And I'm the Machine. Great time for that water swig there, Dave. I think we should just leave it that way. No, but, I think uh, it's going to be good. Yeah, this is, uh, <laughs> this is all already going so, so well. This is a podcast where a sentient machine forces us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. Although... We do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. Today, we're going to be talking and watching the film Man on the Moon. Hello, I am Andy. I want to be the biggest star in the world. Your act is like amateur hour. And I'm not like everybody else. I really like what you did out there. I'm not a comedian. I don't want to go for cheap laughs. What's wrong with this guy? They detest you. That means we're a success. 40 million people are watching you every week. Party time for Latka. Some of us at Saturday Night Live think Andy Kaufman's a comic genius. Thank you very much. You just don't respect anything. You said some pretty inflammatory things. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've always got to be one step ahead of them. This guy is so obnoxious. It's good old-fashioned entertainment, George. Is Andy Kaufman crazy? I'm just acting crazy. I'm gonna do it again and again and again and again and again and again and again. Dave, I definitely want to know what your history with this movie is, but I think there's actually two people we need to have just a quick broader discussion about, which is first, let's talk about Jim Carrey. I want to know what your history with Jim Carrey is. So I uh, so first first pre first I watched this movie after it came out not in the theaters I remember liking it and that's mm -hmm. all I've got for you there I was a huge Jim Carrey fan I think my first introduction to him was in Living Color which was the Nye band show from my family household I think mm -hmm. my brother and I like secretly taped a 
Jim Carrey was amazing that Fire Marshal Bill, all his weird characters right. that would essentially turn out to be him. And then... Uh, <laughs> Extensions of him, yes. Ace Ventura was a huge hit. I think I was probably still a tween. I can't remember. What year is that? 91? Well, here is the thing. If people don't know, 1994 was this huge watershed year for Jim Carrey. Because in that year, in that one year of 1994, Ace Ventura... The Mask and Dumb and Dumber all came out. Oh, were they all in, in the in same one year? year? Oh, all in the same year, like after like a few months in between each of them. And so he popped off so huge because he was in three of like the biggest comedies of the year. I'm pretty sure you can get sued for that phrasing, but um, yeah, he popped it off. I uh, those are three great movies, and he uh, tossed some salad. He you know he he res- reached climax. He, he resurrected uh, Sean Young's career. He introduced the world right. to Cameron Diaz. Yeah. He, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's great. Jeff Daniels was a nobody before him. Yeah, was, was he even acting? Probably not. Yeah, right. Uh, so, yeah, Jim Carrey worshipped him. I thought he was uh, the funniest thing ever. And then uh, when he did this turn, starting here in Eternal Sunshine, like, you know, he became this uh, Truman Show bonafide. Yeah, Truman Show was the year before this movie came out. And I really do think that was his kind of first quote-unquote dramatic role and you see his his range and then of course we had the bias because he's from uh kind of toronto he's from Newmarket. so uh yeah it was it was fun it's kind of like learning mike myers you know we were a big wayne's world fan and well, mike yeah. myers from well, another and, yeah. person that we talked about here earlier in the year when we talked about the second austin powers movie uh i'm always reminded of uh david rakoff who is this writer he wrote um short nonfiction stuff about his life, uh, was a, a This American Life uh, correspondent for years and years and years. He passed away, unfortunately, here just a few years ago. Uh, but he was also from Canada, and he always had this amazing story, is that you'll always discover which friends of yours are Canadian, because if you ever talk about a celebrity that's from Canada, at some point in the conversation, they're going to lean over and be like, you know, they're from Canada. <laughs> you know, we're allowed to have pride. <laughs> Humbling, I know, and, right? it's, and it's so true. So, like, anytime anyone talks about, like, Mike Myers, Jim Carrey, Pamela Anderson, it's like, by the way, they're Canadian. Malin Ackerman. You know what's interesting is yeah. for the longest time, I thought Rick Moranis and uh, What's-His-Face were Canadian because of Great White North, True White North. Mm, but they're not. But they're not. Yeah. So, uh, Dave Thomas. So I'm, John Candy is, I'm though. disappointed in them. Yeah, John Candy is, was. Oof. Yeah, I'm right there with you. So, put in perspective, then in 1994, I would have turned 11 years old. and so. I was exactly the right age for all of those comedies to hit. And again, I thought, yes, this guy is the funniest person in the world. I will say, having rewatched the first Ace Ventura movie a couple of years ago, that doesn't really hold up all that well. And I'm sure the mask doesn't hold up all that well either. I don't know about Dumb and Dumber. I have not tried rewatching that. Cutting edge cutting edge uh, special effects in the mask it's not <laughs> oh yeah they were at the time like but i'm sure that does not hold up it's honestly for ace ventura it's mostly the homophobia and transphobia there's like oh boy it is like all over this movie anyway so that but i love jim carrey and i the truman show is among one of my favorite films of all time i am currently trying to cobble together my official like top 40 films of all time because i'm turning 40 years old here in a few years i thought you're just going all radio top 40 is such a radio throw yeah Come no on, no man. <laughs> it is uh and i don't know i think it's probably if it doesn't hit my top 10 it'll definitely be in my top 20 i'm pretty sure truman show is what i'm talking about 
Uh, I love that movie a lot, a lot, a lot. Should I tell you that I've been filming you for the last 12 months? But I've never seen this movie before, weirdly enough, because it contains so many things that I like. I like Jim Carrey. I usually like his dramatic turns. This is about Andy Kaufman, who I'm fascinated by. I think that he's just an interesting figure. I like Milos Forman, who is the director of this movie. It involves wrestling, which is like another passion of mine. So it's like, why didn't I ever go and watch this movie? Uh, but I just never did for whatever reason. So I'm excited to go and see it. Uh, but that does bring us to like the other person I just wanted to mention briefly. Do you have any history or love of Milos Forman? Um, and I'm hoping I'm saying his first name right, but I'm pretty sure I'm... Yeah. That's kind that's, of close. That's close enough. It's not like when you butchered Sissy Spachuk. I don't know. I mean, when, when I just Googled it, I realized I've watched uh, all of his movies, but I didn't know who he was. I just quickly, looking at this, uh, yeah, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, great. Amadeus, mm -hmm. loved. People versus Larry Flint. Uh, so I uh, believe you're forgetting the seminal movie Hair. I haven't watched there, it. There, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> the musical Hair is somehow directed by Milos Forman. I'm right there with you. When you look at his body of work, especially like his, I don't know, middle period, I guess. I don't know how you would term that. Middle to late period where it's like five movies in a row that are good to great. It is uh, pretty astonishing that he was able to pull pull that off. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is great. No, no uh, argument for me there. I think it's a great movie. Also has Denny DeVito in it, I just realized, interestingly enough. I think Amadeus is a great movie. Again, going back to my top 40 of all time, pretty sure that's going to rank up pretty highly, too. I've, I think it's unfairly sometimes put into the same category as um, The English Patient or Gandhi, which are like these big, long, boring epics. Um, and I think Amadeus is anything but. I think it's actually a really great, like, it moves at a very rapid pace. There's always something happening. Great performances. Adapted from a, a great play as well. But adapted so well for, like, a visual format like film is. Um, anyways, I'm a big fan of Amadeus is what I'm trying to say. I feel like it takes too much heat for not being historically accurate. But I don't right, think yes. that it's meant to be. It's not, tr it's not trying to be no, at all. It's right? like a fun, yeah, yeah surrealist version of uh, how things could have been and and they're not but right who gives a shit it's, it was a great watch which actually is going to be fascinating as a comparison to this movie actually i think so there's gonna be some interesting comparisons i think that we can make uh so let's do that let's me go thank some sponsors and then when we return we'll be delving into man on the moon Hi there, everyone. Just Kyle breaking the fourth wall once again to come in and tell you about all of the great people that help make this podcast keep going. We are one week away from Christmas, so I hope that everyone is able to at least celebrate in some way, if you even celebrate at all. And I do want to thank each and every one of you who has decided to give a listen to this podcast over the last year. It's given me and Dave a lot to be thankful for. But enough of me blabbing, Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is part of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, we're brought to you by ATB, and I want to tell you about ATB's new podcast, The Future Of. Join Todd Hirsch, ATB's Vice President and Chief Economist, as he connects with special guests who offer unique and useful perspectives about the future. Explore how our economy and communities can not only brace for change, but embrace the opportunities it creates. 
From the future of women in business to the changing nature of work itself, the future of helps us understand what's coming and what we need to do today to get the tomorrow we want. Featuring two episodes each month plus bonus episodes, the Future Up includes interviews with top community and business leaders from Alberta and around the world. Subscribe to the Future Up in the Apple Store, Google Play, Spotify, and everywhere podcasts are found, and connect to ask your questions about the future by emailing thefutureof at atb.com. And if it feels like I'm rushing, it's only because I slept in and I'm trying to get this episode up on time. We're also brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network this week. So let's go and listen to one of our other great shows. Hello and welcome to That's a Thing, a sometimes belated, already outdated guide to your teens, tweens, and everything under 20. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. Every month we have a conversation across the generation gap about media, pop culture, society, the internet, that kind of thing. Karen is my mom, and she's old. (laughs) I am her daughter, and I am young. Together we are one human being, here to share with you. Uh, Sometimes we bring in another human being, who's Elizabeth's brother, John, to do a deep dive into memes and stuff like that. Hi. Thank you, John. Uh, We were named the Outstanding Kids and Family Series at the 2020 Canadian Podcast Awards, so we have that going for us. Yes, and we will brag about it until the day the podcast ends, because I am petty. (laughs) You can find That's a Thing in the podcatcher of your choice. That is That's a Thing question mark exclamation point you can also find us at albertapodcastnetwork.com is that everything i think that's it thanks sweetheart bye i know you try to control this podcast with your iron fist and try to wield your power uh but i want to go first this time and tell you what i thought about this movie I can't believe that this movie has been sitting there for 21 years, unwatched by me, how much I loved it. I really, really, really like this movie. I think that it's doing something very different and much like Milos Forman's other film, Amadeus. It's playing fast and loose with reality and like what actually happened. But I think that actually fits the subject matter really well with Andy Kaufman, the person You did not know what was actually real and what was fake necessarily all the time. And he would lie or tell the truth when it suited his needs and sometimes go back on it. And everything was kind of a performance art joke a lot of the times. So I think that the medium is the message a lot of times in this case. Come on. I'm a clue in it. Um, You never go full McLuhan, though. The only kind of negative thing I can say about this is that I think that unfortunately the last 25 minutes kind of goes straight biopic or biopic and i think it's to the detriment of the movie as a whole i think up until that point it's not even trying to be that it's trying to be something else and there is another film that i know you've not watched but i was able to let's say before this movie that we went and watched this movie let's say before we went and watched this movie there's a documentary on netflix called jim and andy and it's this documentary footage that sat around for years and years before they made a documentary out of it. But it shows like the behind the scenes of Jim Carrey and what he was doing and how he got into character and how he kind of went a little insane while making this movie because he it basically embodied Andy Kaufman. He says something in that movie that I think would have actually even elevated this even more. It made me like it somehow even more. 
I don't know how hard he actually fought for it, but he says what he wished they had done is actually incorporate what was actually happening behind the scenes of the making of this movie into <laughs> the movie itself and make it full meta filmmaking. And I think that's exactly what Andy Kaufman would have wanted them to do, to be perfectly frank. Like that would have been such his jam about like, what is actually real? What is actually documentary? What is actually what happened in my real life? What is actually something that was just made up for this movie and completely deconstruct the idea of a biopic in the first place. And ever since that Jim Carrey said that in that documentary, I'm like, oh yeah, that's exactly how they should have made this movie, which is fine to say in hindsight, but hard to have probably pulled off. Uh, at the time. Anyways, what do you think about this movie in our very non-spoilery section, Dave? From what you bring up, the problem with meta as a meme is one should never go full meta or in mm. this case, maybe the Ghostbusters reference, you know, you, you should never cross the streams. And I think <laughs> it's a fascinating thing. Again, I, not knowing much about Andy Kaufman as a as a person that at least how he's depicted in this movie I'm not even sure that Andy Kaufman knew what he was doing. <laughs> I certainly don't know what I'm doing. I think bringing up Jim Carrey having to method act into that role, that's going to drive anybody, especially someone like Jim Carrey who comes from a comedy background, is known for having to play extremes. We also brought up the comparison to Sasha Baron Cohen, and I was talking, hypothetically, if we'd watch this not just now, Helen asked me to describe what this movie is like. And I told her, Oh boy. Imagine if Sasha Baron Cohen didn't have a Sasha Baron Cohen to come back to. <laughs> he didn't have an interview where he was just a British dude who was like, you know, I'm aware of what I'm doing. That's right? a, yeah. That's actually a really great explanation though. I think you're absolutely right. I think that is sometimes even what puts people off of Andy Kaufman is that I think that's what the movie struggles with. Like who is Andy Kaufman? I don't think even Andy Kaufman knew who he was. Yeah, this, I mean, there's, I, I mean, I, I clearly we're not psychologists or psychiatrists, but no, I do have a degree. In <laughs> why are you doing podcasts then? Uh, um, I, I do feel like this would make a great th thesis paper for a psychology student to try to. Oh sure, uh, yeah. Analyze Andy Kaufman in hindsight because uh, what a weird person. And as you brought up at the beginning of this episode, had I been of his generation, and not necessarily. Uh, known him through one character like in Taxi, but if I'd followed Andy Kaufman uh, through all of the adventures that he tried to promote, I don't think I would have liked him. And I don't know how yeah. I would have been able to stomach any of it. It's only in hindsight that we believe that there is some genius to it, but he may have just been a total psychopath. For, for, for the people out there who don't know who Andy Kaufman is, Man on the Moon, of course, is like a, a biopic where Jim Carrey is portraying him Andy Kaufman, most people, if you know him at all, are either going to know him from one, playing Lotka on Taxi. So if you are of the right age and saw that or watched it in reruns, I don't even know if Taxi still airs somewhere. Probably like Nick at Night or something Nick like that night. in the States. But who watches uh, like terrestrial television anymore? So unless you have jumped into watching reruns of Taxi recently, you probably have not seen Andy Kaufman on television recently. The other thing you might know him for if you are a Saturday Night Live nerd is that in the first year, I even want to say it might have been the first episode, but definitely in the first season, he came on a couple of times and his most famous appearance was him essentially lip syncing to the Mighty Mouse theme, except only when the like the big like uh, baritone guy sings and otherwise he just sit, stands there very awkwardly kind of like glancing around the camera. 
they replay it like all the time on Saturday Night Live, like <laughs> reels and like best of moments and that sort of thing. Uh, other than that, I don't know if anyone would know him. He did a bunch of specials. He did the college circuit. He, there's a bunch of different stories about him, but I don't. I really don't know outside of those two appearances if anyone would actually know who Andy Kaufman is. I was a much bigger fan of Tony Clifton. But I guess my question is then, Dave, did you like the movie? Right. Um, yes, I enjoyed watching the movie. There are some genuinely hilarious parts. Hilarious? Who knows? It's tragic, which is fascinating. It is hard to follow a little bit. It's not as fractured as, let's say, we talked about David Lynch maybe playing intentionally mm. with surreal timelines, but there is some getting used to. And I think the play between that little insight with, what's his friend's name? I, I don't remember his friend's name. Well, the friend's Clay. name is Bob Zamuda. Zamuda, who, whatever that person was, made a bit of a, not a heist, but you get this feeling like it's all planned. So it's exciting to watch mm -hmm. how they're trying to manipulate the thing. And as as the whole thing starts to break apart in his tr apparent true life. Yeah, it's, it's a great drama to follow. I was quite engaged. I think as well, like you, I, I think the final wind down is a little too wound down uh, for the pace that it's set yeah. up as. Um, and then just to go meta meta, the fact that they had Danny DeVito in it um, as a main character. Well, that, I mean, there's a lot of again, weird little twists I, I, in there, right? Like the original cast of Taxi. I don't know. There's Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, I don't know how you really talk about this movie without talking about the meta-ness of this. Yes, they play fast and loose one with the timeline of his actual life. And so they kind of do things a little bit out of order in some of the things that they show. But his time on Taxi, they have all the original cast members except for Tony Danza. I don't know why Tony Danza didn't it's want to be there. Because he's the boss. But, it's because he's the boss. But they, <laughs> Because he is the boss. Although I believe Community definitively pointed out that uh, he is not the boss <laughs> but we'll go we won't get into that then you have danny devito who is in taxi not portraying danny devito but his manager you have bob zamuda the real bob zamuda playing a character in this movie uh Lord michaels and then paul giamatti is playing bob zamuda in this movie you have jerry lawler who was the wrestler that he fought with actually in this movie <laughs> redoing that thing and letterman is here he when they went on the letterman show and had their fake fight they redo that again so there's all this stuff like they're recreating they're not just using archival footage like they're not doing the uh forrest gump thing where they could have like basically just like composited into the old footage again and just have jim carrey redo that stuff no they redo it and have people be their ages that they are when they film this movie not the ages they were when it actually happened in real life so if your brain starts to kind of explode because like what is it trying to say and what's it trying to do and why are they using the real actors but again i think it's all to serve this idea that Andy would have loved this because it's breaking that fourth wall and re, re, uh, redoing the same thing while trying to comment on this whole idea of like losing yourself into a character. In your religion. Uh, and we haven't even talked about this whole uh, Tony Clifton thing, which is another bonkers thing that he actually did in real life that comes into fruition here too. But I think that's best left till spoilers, to be honest. Um, how gross would it have been for Marvel to have shot this and young-faced everybody? It, like, it would just been so right. creepy. And um, yeah, no, it's not hard to get into. It is. There's just little points. If you're aware of, for example, I didn't watch Taxi, but seeing Christopher yeah. Lloyd and Danny DeVito, you know, even I can't remember the woman's name. You said it was a photographic memory, but 
Um, she appears. Mary Mary Lou Henner. So she appears and I'm like, I don't think I've ever actually watched an episode of Taxi, but I think she's the one that flagged it for me where I'm like, is this the original cast? And you turn to me, you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. this is this is them minus the boss. Yeah, Larry Judd Hirsch and all the other yeah, people. Judge Her- yeah, that's Actual, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, to your point too about, you know, how meta is too meta. I don't think you can ever be meta enough. And that's not just because Kyle creates everything that I say. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Honestly, when this type of stuff happens, and uh, I was going to save this conversation for a little bit later, but we might as well just talk about it now, and then we can get into some of the background information. This movie solidifies, I think, part of the reason why I do like professional wrestling so much. And the reason why I like professional wrestling so much is, yes, there's like the quote-unquote like athletic ability and the kind of storytelling that happens in it. But there's always this point where we, the audience, who are watching a wrestling match, fully understand that this is made up that's happening in front of us. And then, occasionally, what is going to happen is that something, uh, one of the participants will do something that will make you question, was that supposed to happen? (laughs) Are they doing this exactly the way that it was actually planned when they did this? And probably the most famous example from recent years although not so recent anymore would have actually happened a couple years before this movie came out in 1997 which is now referred to as the montreal screw job and it was bret hart you know calgary native last day in the wwf which is now called the wwe where he was supposed to win a match and he didn't win the match live on pay-per-view because things broke down and everyone there and to this day People are not convinced that some people weren't in on it that claim to this day that were not in on it and didn't know it was actually going to happen. I don't want to go too far into the (laughs) minutiae of that because then that's its own podcast. But, you you know, that sort of thing fascinates me because this it would be like if someone was just playing coy of uh, like Tom Cruise, like, hey, did you perform your own stunts in? Uh, the last mission impossible. I was like, well, I'll never tell. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I did my own stunts. Like we all, we all know that he did his own stunts. They tell us and they show us. And that makes us appreciate those movies a little bit more. But this is like, uh, us seeing Tom Cruise break his own leg on camera. And I mean, like, is that an effect or did he actually just break his leg and they film that on, on tape? That's the kind of level we get to. And I think that's what this movie is trying to balance between number one, this is the most excited I've ever seen you. It's hilarious. You're like freaking <laughs> out because there's too many of your I'm freaking too out many over interests. here. There's too many things firing uh, off. Number two on stunts, you're describing Jackie Chan because you actually literally mm-hmm. see him breaking his leg in some of his movies. I think, I don't know if it was Rumble in the Bronx, whatever. He couldn't continue doing stunts because he had his foot in a cast after they had to change some of the fight career. Right. Number three, there's that principle in writing and performing the willing suspension of disbelief. And I think that when a situation is portrayed well, the word well being um, in a way that the audience accepts, then you will believe anything. I mean, I, you know, when I watched wrestling, it, whatever the scenario was, that's why you have these so-called quote-unquote superstars. Like if you have somebody that comes out and they can embody whatever ridiculous character they're supposed to be even though you know you're in your late 30s and you should know better you're going to pay money yeah. to watch these people perform uh you know <laughs> right well I, I i don't know i i put i literally do put uh professional wrestling up there amongst 
like live theater. It's a form of live theater for there's, me. There's so Maybe many low end live theater, yeah, but there's I mean, just so many bad actors, but it, we, right? I mean, I think in sure, in its heyday, yeah, yeah. I, like I'm trying to remember the last time I was really into it was probably when I was in my early 20s, and it was WWF Monday Night Raw, and you had like yeah. The Rock hadn't even, I think The Rock was just appearing, Triple H, like all these guys would come out and you just, they were fun to watch. They were so stupid, but they were like really into mm-hmm. it. They really bought into it. And of course the heyday, you know, I was a Hulkamaniac and all that stuff. And it was fun. Sure. And then it got weird, Cal. A lot of weird guys yeah, it come got, out. It got a bit too weird by the late 90s, early yeah. 2000s. I'll agree. It's kind of shifted almost too far the other way now, in my like opinion. Like romances but, and uh, uh, <laughs> Well, we want to get it, even into like oh, the okay. weird. Oh yeah, <laughs> romances and bursts live on air. Like, there's some weird stuff that happened in the bursts late nineties. Live on air. Uh, oh yeah. We'll just yeah, we should just let that hang. Well, just let's leave it at that because <laughs> we don't need to go into again. This is not a four-hour podcast where I say, Dave, let me tell you about the late nineties WWF and what was going on at the time. Dave, please don't tempt him into making another podcast. What I think. Andy Kaufman tapped into is that he actually saw professional wrestling as a great inspiration. Because they do this all the time where it's like fake, fake, fake. Oh, and then they're kind of bleeding into reality. Like there's another moment where, and this made national news when Mike Tyson freaked out and started pushing uh, people live on Monday Night Raw. And everyone was like, uh, I don't think he was supposed to be pushing him. He was. It was completely agreed upon beforehand. But he made it look like he was freaking out and like pushing and punching people live on air. When it's like, uh, this, uh, I think we've gone off script here a little bit. I think it's harder to actually trick people nowadays <laughs> than it was back then. But Andy Kaufman was able to be like, yeah, let me go beat up some women. Let me pretend I got my neck uh, broken. Let me swear on the Letterman show. And it makes it all feel like it's actually real. And people want to pay money to go and I, see that. I like how you just dropped that spoiler bomb. But quick note, he didn't get into mm-hmm. wrestling to wrestle with wrestlers. So we'll, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> yes. No, I, I guess. Let's do some backstory here, Dave. So, Man on the Moon was released on December 22nd, 1999. Uh, this was also the release day of Any Given Sunday, written by Daniel Pine, directed by Oliver Al Stone, and starring Al Pacino, Cameron Diaz, who we've already mentioned, Dennis Quaid, and Jamie Foxx. This movie, I will say, is actually not that well-rated. Uh, 7.4 on IMDb, which is okay, but 58 on Metacritic. And then over on Rotten Tomatoes, for 120 critics, it's rated at 63%. And 94,212 users give it a 79%. So it's barely a fresh movie, uh, according to the Rotten Tomato rules. It is available on DVD and Blu-ray. You can buy or rent it on iTunes, and you can also rent it via Google. In Canada, there is no streaming service currently that has Man on the Moon, which is unfortunate. Its budget is a little bit surprising although maybe not surprising as dave uh tried to convince me here before we started to record its budget was 82 million dollars i have to imagine that part of that was jim carrey's salary but uh you know danny devito doesn't come cheap either so (laughs) and he was was already the penguin also when (laughs) if one rents this they will note that there are so many set pieces and changes and real sets i mean i don't think they kept the set of taxi that's a real wrestling ring right they they, i don't think they've uh, maintained the specific ring or david letterman's set and you know of course with movie magic you can always cut corners that don't have to be entirely exact but there's a lot of work this thing takes place in how many timelines how many little events there's, you know, there's a prostitution mm-hmm. thing. There's, there's so many things where 
They had to build stuff. So I, the real question, Kyle, is why was Runaway Bride $60 million? Boy, your eternal question, don't you? $60 million. Well, it opened to $7 million. Domestically, it would make 34 And internationally, it would only make $12 more million, which brings it up to 47 This is bombed at the box office uh, as per its, its budget. $74 million, uh, with inflation. Its plot description from IMDb is very illuminating, Dave. Its plot description from IMDb is the life and career of legendary comedian Andy Kaufman. <laughs> well, that's, you know... Very succinct, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> and not entirely a lie. Uh, it stars Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman and Tony Clifton, Paul Giamatti as Bob Zamuda and Tony Clifton, Danny DeVito as George Shapiro, and Courtney Love as Lynn Margulies. Uh, anything you want to say about any of those other actors? We've talked about Jim Carrey already. Yeah, I mean, you would think that I had forgotten we were recording this and had not done any background research. So I have literally nothing to say. It's fascinating. How meta is that? Uh, you know, uh. how meta is that? I mean, just a, a few call-outs here. I will say, I think this is like right before Paul Giamatti kind of became what I call an indie darling, where he was in just a bunch of like low budget films that people freaked out about, like Sideways, American Splendor, other ones. Um, <laughs> that's Paul Giamatti. You, uh, you know him when you see him. Yeah, that's right. And then you're like, well, you do. He's good, yeah, no, so yeah, good in that thing. I bet you anything around Hollywood, screenwriters will probably often write into their scripts a Paul Giamatti type. Oh, of course. That's probably what they yeah, would write. Yeah, yeah. Strung out. Uh, Daddy DeVito, of course, was. Remember Taxi? I'm trying to think of where I would have probably known him Twins? from first. Probably May, Twins. Actually, what was the other one that he did with Schwarzenegger? Twins and... He did two with Schwarzenegger? I just remember Twins, honestly. I thought he did. Maybe I'm told, Maybe it is Twins that I'm just thinking yeah. of. Anyways, uh, definitely uh, Batman Returns. Yeah. I would have known him as as uh, the, great the penguin. penguin. Yeah. But I have a feeling I saw him in something else. I just don't... Oh, you know what? I probably saw Matilda. I bet Matilda is the other thing that I, I knew him from. That would be yours. Yeah. I mean, he's good in it. And it's an okay movie. But that yeah. would make sense for you. That it would be Matilda for Kyle Marshall. Well... That Kyle Marshall's hey. relationship with Danny DeVito would be the Matilda's seminal classic. Matilda's great, man. <laughs> Matilda's great. Uh, uh, he, it would only be... Four or five years later that he would start doing It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I so. remember the first time I found that show and he appears, I was already cackling before he had his first line. It's just amazing that they got him to agree to do that. Oh, yeah. Like they even say it's like they offered it to have fully anticipating yeah. him to say no. And now he's lasted 14 years on that show. So I think in the commentary, I used to own those DVDs and the, they said the first season he agreed to do it, but he would show up for like 20 minutes and they'd have to do all his takes in this short time he allotted for it. Because even though he wanted to do it, you know, he's a busy man mm -hmm. uh, and he's just a genius because everything he does in that show is. Uh, he is so gross and <laughs> reprehensible on that show, but it works for him. Like just, yeah, this him eating like. <laughs> If you don't know It's All the Same in Philadelphia, it's basically Seinfeld, but for even more awful people. There is an episode where they figure out that they can infuse rum into ham, and so they're just getting drunk off of eating ham. And that's the light and side. I that sounds never, like early seasons. <laughs> it gets oh, much yeah, worse. Like first five or six. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it gets even worse after that. But I don't know the last time I laughed so hard and so deep than the line reading Danny DeVito does when he wakes up on an inflatable raft out in the middle of the ocean and he sees his ham floating away from him and he just goes like, ham, rum ham. <laughs> and he just like, it is so funny. 
It's a great show. Um, and then Courtney Love is in this movie as well. Justice tell a segue, Kyle. There was a moment, I feel, where Courtney Love was being positioned as a great actress. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think she was in a couple this, of like high profile things. Felix, this is I the movie. Yeah. Movie. If I was this movie, there's another thing I saw her in too around this time. And now I don't remember what that movie is. Uh, maybe I don't know really if that ever legitimately came a thing. I think she, I was just going to say she Cheryl Crowed a little bit. I think around this time, because, you know, as she was going up with Kurt Cobain and doing Hole and all that stuff. She, oh, did she know Kurt Cobain? <laughs> she was, uh, Already, right, on the uh, attic side. But I think around the 2000s when she started not looking so great in her public appearances, kind of looked a little bit like she was having a hard time. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, apparently it doesn't work in Hollywood. I, her age right. too, Hollywood, particularly in the 2000s, was oh, yeah. incredibly Pretty brutal. It's still bad, yeah. but um, you know, I think a 30, 40-year-old actress who has chops can make it now. But in the early 2000s, it was near impossible. So that, that might have harmed her chances too. It's a weird world. This it is a very weird world. This movie is written by the writing team of Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, I think is how you say his last name. We'll say that's what it is. They started in 1990 with the movie Problem Child. That's nice. the first movie they wrote together. Nice. Isn't that interesting? And John Ritter. John Ritter. They teamed up with Tim Burton for Ed Wood. So they're the writers of Ed Wood. Uh, and then did a couple of movies with Milos Forman. So this movie and The People versus Larry Flint. However, I'm pretty sure most people will know them for their amazing and great work for Agent Cody Banks, Ooh. the Frankie Muniz project, <laughs> which I think actually co-stars Paul Giamatti, if I'm not mistaken. I've never watched it. I do think As it's tragic. Ebra. This uh, Is it Frankie Muniz that had the amnesia? No, is that Fred Savage? Yes. No, it's Frankie Muniz. No, no, yeah. no. You're right. You're yeah. right. Frankie Muniz, uh, star of Malcolm in the Middle who is also into Formula One racing, who has had so many concussions that he does not remember anything of the filming of Malcolm in the Middle. Presumably. That's right. Unless Presume. he's Andy Kaufman yet. Yeah, maybe, maybe Frankie Muniz is just an Andy Kaufman creation. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. No, uh, recently, that. though, their most recent work was Dolomite Is My Name. So if you've watched I'm, that off of Netflix. Is it good? I haven't yeah. seen it. It's, it's, it's fine. I feel so bad. I, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's fine. It's fine. Mm. I, I didn't hate it, didn't love it, but it was fine. Yeah, they're talking about how it's the resurgence of Eddie Murphy, but I wasn't ready for it. I mean, it's the best film he's been in in a decade, so if that's the resurgence of Eddie Murphy, sure. But by the way, we actually, the machine though, the machine is the one who's racist, uh, skipped over his two big movies that came out in 1999. So there you go. I'm pretty sure that was a rounding error. Da- and Dr. when I say Doolittle? big, no. I guess when I say big, I yeah, when I say big, I should be that should be like a little asterisk beside that word because that's doing a lot of work in that sentence. He did the movie Life, and he did a uh, Bowfinger. You know what? I actually liked Bowfinger. Is that Steve I did Martin? Too. I yeah. remember. Yeah, I remember. It's probably also the last good movie Steve Martin's been in. <sighs> that's shade being thrown, well, but I love Steve Martin yeah. growing up. His live act with Martin Short was quite good when they did their little. Recent- I saw it. I saw it in Calgary uh, live here. All right, let's move on. Directed by Milos Forman. I'm going to say his name as many times as possible. Milos. He's from Czechoslovakia. He's directed a few documentaries and features before jumping to the United States. So One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is his first, I believe, English language film. Well, Is one of only three films. Here's your Academy Award trivia for the week, Dave. It is one of only three films to win the big five uh, all in one night, which is 
the best screenplay, best actor, best actress, best director, best picture. Pretty in a pretty small company to be able to do that. Of course, did Hair, the musical Hair, which, to be perfectly frank, I'm not the biggest fan of the musical Hair. There's some good music in it, but the story is doesn't really hold up in the year 2020. And of course, there's Amadeus, The People versus Larry Flint. The last film he directed was Goya's Ghosts in 2006, which I have never seen, so I don't have an opinion on it. Uh, although it was not very well reviewed, and he passed away in 2018. So no more Milosh wow. uh, for for us. Milosh. 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 What if, yeah, what if you have to do an inflection on a different vowel? Yeah, what if it's Milosh? Oh, yeah. So I guess now that we're in the spoilery section, the gloves are off. I want to talk at least a little bit more about Tony Clifton specifically, because this is where uh, I could understand why people would even start to hate this movie once the Tony Clifton character kind of gets introduced. So again, if you're listening, haven't watched the movie, in real life, we have Andy Kaufman, who is doing essentially stand-up gigs, but doesn't really do jokes. He does kind of impersonations. He does these odd characters. And mostly he does stuff that essentially he finds funny, but he doesn't really care if the audience finds it funny or not. That's what we're led to then, believe in the movie. We're led to believe. Yeah. Unbeknownst to his manager at the time, he was also putting on makeup and a wig and like this kind of fat suit and like changing his like body proportions to perform as this character, Tony Clifton, who was essentially like an insult comic slash lounge singer. Not a particularly great singer, but would go and like make fun of people and like scream at the audience. And he found this incredibly hilarious. Nobody in the audience found this funny. This is where his partnership with uh, Bob Zamuda came into play because they both would play the character of Tony Clifton. And where it gets incredibly convoluted is Andy refused to admit that he was Tony Clifton. He said Tony Clifton was a completely different character. In the Tony Clifton guise, he would often talk down about Andy Kaufman and how much he hated Andy Kaufman. To the point, and this is actually a real story that is presented in the movie, where he got Tony Clifton to be hired on as a guest spot on Taxi, and they had to fire Tony Clifton <laughs> because he was being such a dick to everybody. And again, this is all part of Andy's like, uh, performance art thing that he loved that he thought this was so funny that everyone else just kind of had to put up with but he's kind of a reprehensible character like the character of tony clifton is not a fun person to be around i don't know if you have anything else to say about that no it's fine you can keep going kyle i, I... <laughs> no you know while listening to you i had this thought of whether uh, andy coppin was ever tony clifton or if he was always bob zamuda he was at least once, right? Like, I guess yeah, at least in the film, answer. yeah. There was that one. Well, no, twice. Once with the twice, with the yeah. little meta stage act, and then at the end of the film. And it, it brings uh, again the question of whether Andy Kaufman should be credited for being this genius who's aware and playing this in a meta and intellectual sense, like playing a joke on an audience, or if he was just insane and this was part of a mm -hmm. an initial schism in his mind, where he couldn't actually differentiate between the two. I feel like that's just a regular Friday for you. I think in the movie, for sure, there's a tone that all of this is this inside joke, much like the comparison to Sacha Baron Cohen, where the joke isn't about 
who he's in a room with, but rather uh, maybe in hindsight or how it's portrayed once people are aware of what's happening behind the scenes. Like I hate Borat and Bruno and all of that stuff because I'm not, I don't care about the backstory stuff. I don't, I don't care why he does it. And so all of this intentional playing a joke on an audience, that stuff, I, I just don't like it. And so this idea the, the, the that- thing I, The thing I was going to bring up about Sasha Baron Cohen, and I, I'm, I'm actually kind of medium on Borat, to be perfectly honest. I just rewatched the first one and watched the new one that came out on Amazon Prime. Uh, so I've never been like the hugest Borat fan. Uh, what is kind of fascinating, why I, well, I know for a fact how much Sasha Baron Cohen was influenced by Andy Kaufman is that you get to have, again, that meta conversation about who is in on the joke and who isn't. Because there's certain skits that everybody in that room is in on the joke and they know what's going on and it's just scripted. And sometimes it's not. And so part of the fun, quote unquote, or part of the heavy lifting of maybe the audience is being like, is this a a mirror reflection to me, the audience member, and why I'm laughing? Or is this trying to uncover something, like an uncovered bias or something, inside of America or the UK or wherever he's going. But at the same time, does that still hold true if these people know what is going on? But there's another whole conversation to be had about that. Yeah, I think we talked about, I don't remember which episode, but we did talk about this concept that the, maybe it was the last one, the surreal is meant to leave you questioning yourself rather than to entertain you. The way this movie portrays Andy Kaufman, I think that's uh, exactly what we're supposed to believe, that Andy Kaufman is completely aware that he's challenging the audience, kind of telling them to fuck off, that it's not what you think, and I don't give a shit where you're, you thought you were supposed to be, but when you leave this theater, you're going to start questioning why you thought anything was funny. It puts a lot of credit <laughs> onto people. So uh, at least, again, maybe I'm thinking too much about Andy Kaufman rather than the movie, but uh, it's an interesting thing to watch that this is a biopic that's definitely leaning to this idea that Andy Kaufman is designing these experiences for other people. The hardest part actually that I had getting there was the opening sequence of him as a, uh, the not opening, but the part where he's a child and performing for himself uh, in his bedroom. I don't think that plays right. with what he becomes later. And I, I think that really has been jutting out in my mind as probably the weakest part of this movie and maybe connects with the ending, which is also a little weak, which is, I think every yeah, celebrity is going to yeah. suggest that they were performing uh, since they were three, you know, and for that to turn into him, like the next sequence is him at a, at a comedy club, like just bombing. Um, weird. Yeah, like it, Very weird. I, I, I agree. I think that in the framing of a biopic or biopic, I, I never know how to say that word, but in the framing of this like document, like a uh, real life tale, I agree with you in that one scene is like, we never really tie it back to that need to perform because that really isn't what we see for the rest of the movie. He's like, I'm performing for myself and I'm getting joy out of this for myself. And I think what they're trying to do at the beginning and what the kind of the narration is saying is that he's trying to impress his father and that he's trying to get close to his father. He wants that, that connection there. But I don't think that ever really comes into play for the rest of the movie. And again, if they wanted to make that point, not to belabor this too much, but in the documentary, Jim and Andy, boy, do things get wild. Because essentially, as Jim Carrey is embodying Andy, he claims like the spirit of Andy Kaufman, like infused himself into me, which I kind of go bullshit on. But whatever. That's what he says. 
However, he would hold conversations with his with Andy Kaufman's parents, with Andy Kaufman's brother, and have like these like they would be weeping and like hugging each other by the end of it because they're like, no, it was actually Andy that was speaking to me from beyond the grave. Like they had these very emotional moments. They don't show a lot of that, but they enough of it to be like, holy geez, like I can't even imagine how how Jim Carrey wouldn't have lost it, honestly, when you're having that kind of uh, thing thrown at you. And apparently Andy Kaufman had a daughter, which is never talked about in this movie, who came who never met her father before he passed away, who came and saw Jim Carrey and again had like this emotional like breakdown in his trailer. And so if you're going to make that connection between like this amazing person, Andy Kaufman, I just don't think you see that in the movie. You see the, 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 the put upons, you see how he keeps playing with it. That every time you think someone is in on the joke, he twists the knife a little bit further. Actually, you're not in on the joke. I'm in on the joke and I'm going to keep lying to people if I need to, so that I can keep entertaining myself. I I do think, I mean, knowing not that much with Jim Carrey. I, I would expect that Jim Carrey as a person would probably have a lot of similarities to an Andy Kaufman. And mm-hmm. much like I was talking earlier about Sasha Baron Cohen, there, there's probably a stronger root or core system where he can flip back to something more central to himself. But there was that period where he was, Jim Carrey was not really doing a lot of big blockbusters. And whenever you would see a candid interview, he looked completely unhinged. But if you become famous for playing exceptionally extreme characters, even in a drama, you have to be in a, like, this is not like Truman Show is a meta movie where he has to continually question whether anything around him is real. And then you go home and you're Jim Carrey and you're making $20 million a movie. You can't go anywhere without being recognized. How can a person remain sane or whatever that means? But uh, average or normal or have a context that makes sense. So I'm average at being above average. I, the only thing about Andy Kaufman is I don't remember him as being this kind of big name. I think he's more of a cult cult figure. He is niche if, if yeah, I agree with that. He, I don't ever think he really broke no. through even as much as what this movie wants you to believe. Right. He, he broke through to a certain segment of people for sure, but I don't think he was ever as popular as even say Gosh, I'm trying to think of someone that would be super popular. Like he was never a Steve Martin, for instance, in the 70s. Like Steve Martin was selling out stadiums across the country. Uh, Andy Kaufman was going through the university circuit. Like he was not selling out stadiums. You know, Andy Kaufman, it's kind of like when you watch comedy, a comedian bios or documentaries, they always have these guys that just didn't make it. They're always like, oh, that guy used mm-hmm. to always, I think he's like a cult figure in that sense. Like I have a yeah. sense that all these comedic, geniuses and people are like that guy had it but you know um i mean they talk about bob saget the way they talk about all these guys that i mean bob saget definitely had a career but his true comedy is disgusting Mm -hmm. it's hilarious he's sure well i think there's two things to that because there's uh, certain comedians that they will often refer to as like that's a comedian's comedian right right? the guy who makes other comedians like just like bust a gut but like the broader public probably doesn't care about them all that much and at least the these or not one of the things that the movie posits, I think, is that Andy Kaufman was just not interested in that. He presumably. didn't care if he had, presumably. Yeah, he, I don't think he really cared if he had like a huge following. He just wanted to keep doing his stuff. Uh, one thing you did bring up, though, and actually, oh, I wrote this down in my notes. I think this is a fascinating comparison with the Truman Show. I think that the fact that Jim Carrey did these two films back to back is super intriguing because with the Truman Show. 
it's this film about a guy who doesn't know that the whole world is watching him and then decides that he he rejects that once uh, that becomes known to him. And this movie is a guy who wants the entire world to look at him, but the audience rejects him. And I think that's just a fascinating double feature to kind of take a look at. I just I just thinking, where's Jim Carrey's mind when he reads these scripts? You know, Truman Show, I can see if someone puts that in front of me, it's such a fascinating concept. But having shot, gone through it and built it, someone hands me Andy Kaufman's, you know, Man on the Moon. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, do I do this? I I just have this thought, like, do I do this again? Like in a darker, weirder way. Right. But uh, it's a fascinating, it would be interesting. It's impossible, but it'd be interesting to be in that room over those two or three years where Jim Carrey's like, I don't know who he was living with at the time, but what the machinations of uh, approaching roles of this nature, particularly knowing where he came from, you know, the in living color and the the slapstick weird character comedy, and then playing two weird characters in sort of opposing, uh, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, environments. Well, he certainly became more and more Andy Kaufman esque as the filming of this went on. Uh, the the biggest example of that, honestly, is. The relationship between him and the wrestler Jerry Lawler, uh, which is very different than the real relationship that apparently Lawler and Kaufman had. Uh, as Lawler explains it in interviews that I've watched of him, is that they were both in on the joke and made things up. So they knew each of them knew exactly what was going to happen during each like wrestling bout when they went on Letterman. Like everything was planned out between the two of them, and it was very respectful. Jim Carrey, on the other hand, was intentionally provocative and would push his buttons and actually had to go to the hospital after Lawler punched him <laughs> in it the face. It looked like it, like uh, on the Letterman set? Well, no, that he asked him, yes, to slap him as hard as he could uh, in that shot yeah. when he was supposed to like have it. like a, a, dub, a double yeah. actually slap him. Uh, he said, no, no, uh, Jerry, hit me as hard as you can. And like, he, he actually hit him as hard him. as he could. Nice. But no, behind the scenes, he kept poking him and poking him and throwing water at him until he got Lawler just popped him right in the eye. And he had to go to the hospital and that like blew up and like agents and studios had to get involved and all that kind of stuff. So uh, again, it's like art imitating life, imitating art, and it gets all so convoluted. Man. And it's meta. Sounds very much like our relationship. Uh, I want to talk maybe just a little bit about the ending then and what you make of it, because I certainly have my own interpretation but, you know, he is dying of cancer in real life and goes to, I think it's the Philippines. I think that's where they go. And they're going to some sort of like sage doctor who can apparently like pull out tumors from people's bodies. And you see one before Andy kind of goes into the room. And I was like grossed out. I'm like, oh, what the hell is he doing? Like pulling this weird thing out of the guy's body, blood everywhere. And then when Andy lays down, you notice that it's just a magic trick, right? He just he palms the thing and pretends to pull it out and he smiles and then like it kind of fades to black and the next thing we see andy has passed away what do you make of kind of that final ish scene well i mean uh, leading up to the scene i think there's too much i mean no it's maybe it's important but you get the moral of the movie which is uh when you lie too much no one knows when you're telling the truth. So they have the whole sequence, 15 minutes of him needing to try to convince people he's actually dying and nobody buying it. Yeah. And I think too, you know, the uh, part with the quack doctor, it, I think it plays the same way. I mean, it seems like as they're approaching 
he actually has a look of hope that this is a real thing because he needs to believe in something. And then as he's lying down and, you know, uh, we as uh, a viewing audience, particularly in the 2020s, we assume everything's fake. <laughs> I, mean, I know I do. And mm-hmm. so when the tumor comes out of the first patient, I'm just thinking, oh, yeah, of course, this is palming some guts. And so when he finally sees it, you know, he has this smile because it's almost a, a metaphor for his life, right? Where he's now the audience member who was actually expecting one thing and now has to be disappointed to uh, learn about these meta veneer shit. It's weird. It's not necessarily a sour taste, but it is a weird thing. Is it? Yeah. And then following that, they they relive the funeral, right? And we right. tie into the actual intro where I think we're supposed to believe that the when you if you watch this movie, the intro is this meta thing of him is the credits him yeah. showing the credits because <laughs> he's trying to convince the movie's over, and so kind of to your original point, which I have to just say this like I want you to finish that thought. What I think is a brilliant way to start it because he basically says, "Okay, all the people who are going to hate this movie anyways have already yeah. left. Now we're just going to be left with the people who kind of get what I'm trying to go for." And like, yes, you need that kind of setup to really buy into. What you're about to see for the next two hours. Which is, I think when you brought up how Jim Carrey, I guess, in this document or somewhere else, thought that the behind the scenes should could have been, I think that's the limit at which you could do that, which is mm-hmm. uh, goofing around these timelines and forcing everybody who is actually involved to relive all the moments they were already involved in, uh, to portray them for a current audience in their old age. I mean, there are too many weird niches uh, that are fulfilled that, you know, I think I would appreciate it more now than I would have when I was, you know, 20 or whatever it was. I think I agree with you. I think it's important that I saw it in the year 2020 because I think I appreciate it more watching it currently than I would have in 1999. Yeah, and it would have been too fresh. Which is maybe why the, the score is so low from the critics. Yeah. In that time, maybe they just didn't, yeah, they weren't ready to engage with that because honestly, after, you know, the internet and, uh, you know, fake news and everything else blowing up and those terms and how we kind of just innately understand that people put on a face in different situations. Like all of this is like, yeah, no, I get it. Like, yeah, for sure. (laughs) Everyone is, is pretending to be something. And I think that's what this movie really kind of tries to drive at. The idea of hiding behind veneers, of course, is as old as time as human humanity, but certainly in the two thousands onward with the internet, social media, this meta nature is what's twisted so much. And um, mm-hmm. whether people are in on the joke or in on a joke of being in on a joke, you know, and all these stupid conundrums. Well, yeah. so. well even like comedy on online, when you get into like memes and memes of right. memes and 4chan jokes and Reddit jokes and jokes that only work on Twitter, like all these things that you kind of have to be engaged with online. Like my parents are not going to understand why a certain meme is funny because they just don't have any of that context behind it. We do. And maybe that says more about our society is maybe we should just disengage more. Maybe we'll be happier if we don't try to impress other people. They're trying to engage with the the most popular things that are going on. I think that's a fact. The the problem is it's not easy to do. And uh, it requires deep psychological self-reflection on one's own true motives and goals and values and nobody nobody has time for that i gotta get to my next uh, post and next like it would be fascinating as a hypothetical watching this movie how like you i think you brought up earlier what would andy kaufman or someone like as distracted as he seems to really be 
be like in the internet culture. I wonder if he would just disappear and not be a part of it. It's too much. Like, how do you how do you be meta in a culture of meta ness? It's uh, it's harder you, to do. For it'd be sure, even more yeah. insane. I'm just trying to think of an example yeah. of whether people are already doing this and just. I mean, I guess yeah, Sasha Baron Cohen, but I don't. I know. mean, you yeah. I was gonna say Sasha Baron Cohen comes the closest to it, and even in the new Borat film, what's actually kind of smart that he does is that he has to acknowledge the facts like I can't actually be Borat anymore. Uh, that's actually how the movie starts. Like I can't just walk down the street as Borat in America because everyone knows who I am. So I can't actually do the same thing, which is why he has to bring his daughter to be the surrogate person who's in every scene to cause the comedy to happen. Um, I think Andy Kaufman would have found the same thing had he survived to this point. Um, I, I am. If he would have survived to this point, like who knows? Well, he uh, didn't. <laughs> I think either he would have totally disengaged or as I said beforehand, I think he would have been a Trump supporter because he liked to rabble rouse and like just go kind of against the grain of what people were doing. I haven't watched the new Borat movie, but doesn't he wear other costumes as Borat wearing those costumes? Yes. The, yeah. And that's, that's the thing. thing. He's Borat yeah, as. Yeah, it gets so weird. But he's, again, again, if we think about the original Borat film where he's basically in every frame, in this one, he's maybe in a quarter of it. It's really mostly the daughter that's that's, that's the in problem it, with meta, right? Stuff. It's uh, yeah. you have to hide between more and more shells. And I think this is the point of the movie. I, I think it might have just been a precursor to the internet age. I don't think he even knows how many shells I, he's wearing. Yeah. He's, he's matroski. Yeah. What it actually reminds me of is actually like another Kaufman, weirdly enough, Charlie Kaufman's work. Right. Because you see him really basically using film to deconstruct his own neuroses a little bit but even the idea of art because being john malkovich as just an example is like very subtly that way where like we're tearing down this idea of like a bit character actor john malkovich that i don't know if the wider population would even know who john malkovich is uh but definitely film nerds know who john malkovich is john malkovich is my stepbrother and then you follow that up with adaptation, which is essentially a sequel to being John Malkovich, but not really. And it's also an adaptation of a book, but not really. And he creates himself to be a character with a twin brother that he doesn't actually have. So that kind of just blows out. Um, and then you, I think it ultimately gets to be Synecdoche, New York, which is like an artist trying to create a film over 40 years and it totally consumes him and it's his downfall. Uh, so he's constantly like wrestling with these like big ideas. In fact, it would have been actually fascinating if they had tried to make this movie just a couple years later as Charlie Kaufman as the director, because I think he would actually be a better marriage to this material break. than Milos Forman is. With a screenplay adapted by David Lynch. Yeah, like it was just like, <laughs> now I can't say that that would make it no. good. I'm just saying that that would have been an interesting way to go and that like that I'm would just, break my brain yeah, probably. Things would just light on fire spontaneously. It'd yeah. be the end of the world. We're done here. The machine has asked us to wrap it up. So let's ask those questions that we normally ask. Do you think this holds up and do you think it is culturally relevant, Dave? I mean, I guess my preface, my preface is that I did enjoy watching it. Uh, however, uh, I don't think it... <laughs> oh, I, 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 have, I hear a I don't think uh, I don't think it holds up that well. And the reason being, mm. I think it... Like, I, I can't remember which movies we talked about. I, it's come up a lot. But I, in, this, in this talk too, if you're not in on the joke then there's no relevance to any of it. It's entertaining to us because we have some grounding, let's say, in Taxi or Jim Carrey, but, you know, it's pretty dated. It's talking about a past time. It's a type of performance that's been pantomimed so much and evolved so much that I, 
I don't know. Like, I would never watch this movie again. I'm not sure if it holds up. I I don't think it holds up as well as uh, you clearly do. Yeah, I I, uh, fully admit that this is just entirely my jam. So I'm a little bit... It had wrestling in it. So it's going to be a five out of five. But... No, and that's not necessarily yeah, we'll true. See. Or else I'd be like, Ready to Rumble is the best movie ever made. <laughs> you know um, what is a good wrestling movie? That Netflix movie with that kid that finds the mask. Have you seen that? You should watch that. Oh, uh, I have it's not. No. Um, but you've told me, like, I think this is the third time you've told me to watch it. And I'm still not going to watch it. Um, I fully believe that this movie holds up in the fact that there are still things that are discussed to this day that are relevant to this day this idea of putting on a face of pretending to be something that you're not i think that that element really works for me and i think it's still something that modern audiences could get behind now i think you are right to call out the fact that because i know a bit about andy kaufman that I think there's some things that my brain and my mind are filling in that this movie does not really fill in very much. So I think that it there is a, a a bit of a barrier to entry here for some people. But I think the performances are just so good that I could kind of be swept away. That had I not known anything about Andy Kaufman, I'd just be like, this is so bonkers. But I'm totally along for the ride. You may disagree with me, but the fact that Jim Carrey was not even nominated for Best Actor in 1999, I think is a bit of a travesty. Not only do I think he should have been nominated, I at least think that his performance was better than Kevin Spacey's was in American I was gonna Beauty. Say, we need to dedicate an episode here, Kyle, or some type of uh, disc- uh, discourse on this year's Oscar nominees in general, because... Uh, yeah. I mean, as you know, my opinion about the Academy is not a positive one, but this year in particular seems a little egregious. Yeah, there's, they, it's weird. There's a lot to debate. You know, I love you, Michael Caine, but uh, you should not have been nominated. Yeah. I think we will have some time, Dave. Let's just put Present. it that way. Uh, so anyways, what I'm trying to say is that I think I think it holds up just by the quality of the filmmaking, the performances, the specific subject matter. Sure. I think there is a bit of um, stuff that you need to know, but I think that's true for any historical film. like. The movie can only do so much, and then you kind of have to fill in the gaps with your own knowledge or reading. There, otherwise, there, you need a documentary to be like, or you need Ken Burns to be like, here is 15 hours on Andy Kaufman and everything that happened Just in his life. Just to point out your bias, I did not know anything much about Mozart's life or Larry Flint's life to enjoy those movies. And I haven't sure. watched them recently. Uh, maybe we should, but um, that's not why I enjoyed them. And this movie definitely has the same ability to entertain you, particularly in some of the bits and and some of the acting. But I do feel like you are lending a lot of value to it uh, with all of the research and interest you have personally to it. Sure. But I I will also push back a little bit. There's no way to approach a movie without your own background to it. I can't be like, I'm writing this movie based on what I think other people are going to think about this movie. I have to come at it by my own experiences, my own backgrounds and my own likes and dislikes. Uh, so for me, this is right up my alley. <laughs> it is like this made this movie was made for Kyle and I can fully admit that this is not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but for Kyle Marshall, this is a great this, movie. It, and I'm going to rate it as such. This should have actually had an opening card, you know, with love to Kyle Marshall. Kyle Marshall. In 20 years, yeah. this will be viewed by our favorite adopted son. That's right. Kyle Marshall. 
so that's so that's what Dave and I thought. Uh, I, we'd love to know what you think. So you can send feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. And you can find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films from 1999 that we've watched and rated, you can go to our Letterboxd page. Uh, that's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes for this episode. You can support us for as low as a dollar per month. And of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. By the way, something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to rating this movie, Dave. Out of five, what would you give this film? You know, I, I think I'm going to go around the 3.5. I think that... All right. That's yeah, respectable. I think I'll agree with the general consensus on the internet that it wasn't a bad movie. It was barely fresh, as you put it. <laughs> it's barely <laughs> fresh. Rain endorsement by one David Yun. You know, I think what what at some point, Dave, what we should really do too is describe to people how we look at the numbers that we give to movies. Because I think your 3.5 and my 3.5 are vastly different things. <laughs> well, I did propose <laughs> that we do a little bit more of a either genre specific or uh no, that's way <laughs> too hard to do. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah. This is this is two out of four for a horror well, film. Well, I, I meant more like, you know, acting could be four to five. Plot, yeah. you know, oh, nuance, see, that see, sort see, of thing. But, uh, yeah, uh, but then that would make like this last section of the podcast 30 well, minutes we should, long. We could do that. As you we know, get into the Cal, we could do that. Oh, I see, mic. I see. I never do anything off mic, as you know, Dave. Uh, so I, like I told you, Really adore this movie. But I do think that that last 25 minutes does kind of stray away from the point a little bit and tries to tie together some themes that doesn't really present itself until the very end of the movie. Uh, so for me, it doesn't quite get to that like perfect five out of five mark. For me, I'm giving it a 4.5. Uh, so it's almost great. <laughs> Uh, almost great. It's very good. I it's really love it. Pretty but it's not fresh, like a perfect but like film. not the freshest. Pretty, yeah. Not totally <laughs> fresh. Uh, that does mean that it averages out to a four, uh, which Dave, that means it is tied with six other yeah. films that we have to somehow get it into here. So from top to bottom. I always prefer going from top to bottom. We have Magnolia, The Hurricane, Toy Story 2, 10 Things I Hate About You, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels, and Go. Where would you kind of put this movie in relation to uh, those? Definitely above Lock, Stock. Although yeah. it's more fun. I would watch Lock, Stock again. But uh, what was after that? 10 Things I Hate About You. Uh, yeah, right above that is 10 Things and I Hate About You. Toy Story 2. Toy Story 2 and, and then The Hurricane. It depends on the mood I'm in on the day. You know? the I would agree. Like, there's a lot of minutiae that go on to here because, to be perfectly honest, like, right now, gun to my head, I don't know why this would be the choice, but it's like, oh, are you going to watch Man on the Moon or are you going to watch 10 Things I Hate About You? I'm probably going to say, like, oh, yeah, I'll see course. 10 Things I Hate About You. It's a great, yeah. it's a fun movie to go and it was still, and watch, it's still a but... depth. It still had a lot of uh, story yeah. in it. It's not just popcorn. 
the, the only one that I would say, and again, this is such a me because I know you don't have the same feelings towards that movie. For me, I only think Magnolia for sure is a better movie, in my opinion. Uh, but really, I, at any point in that list, I could see this fitting yeah. into. I mean, I, I think uh, I would put it below 10 Things I Hate About You today. Yeah. Today. I mean, I, I don't know. It's a tough okay. one. Yeah, You know what I'm surprised more by? That Hurricane is second in that group of six. Well, we rated yeah. it very highly. No, it's interesting. We rated it very highly. Now I'm reflecting on it. I'm like, did I like it that much? <laughs> <laughs> hey, stick by your guns, man. That's what stick we need guns. is a year in review so that we can pick, especially at the beginning when we didn't know what we were getting into. And now that we're much more cynical nope. and wizened. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that means that Man on the Moon is going to be entering our list in the number 15 position. Well, uh, we've had a long time. Let's uh, see what we're going to be. Let's see what we're going to be reviewing next week here, Dave. Oh, speak of the devil. Uh, we're going to be actually talking about a Charlie Kaufman movie, a Charlie Kaufman written movie, at least, being John Malkovich Sweet. next week. Of course, next week being Christmas Day. So not only do you get to unwrap your presents, but the... Uh, joyous gift of me and Dave's voice will be entering your ears next week on Christmas Day. Try to Day. wrap that up. Hey, hey, Dave. Hey, Dave, do you want to wrestle? Uh, you just want to wrestle? I guess. I uh, I don't know. Are there any women around? Dave, there has been no woman that has entered this house for the last five years. <laughs> I'm average at being above average.